0: Hey Duncan. James, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm well too. All right, let's get started into this week's episode. So um, welcome to Cloud Strix, a podcast that is hosted by both Duncan and myself, where we like to, uh, whenever we come across a really interesting idea or concept, um, we like to try and tease it out and understand it better. And One of the most uh, compelling ways we've found to do this is to talk about it uh, here on this forum for about an hour. Uh, so this week, we're actually going to talk about um, what is otherwise known as the Frankfurt School. So there's a lot to unpack here, and you'll have to bear with us. But um, to quickly summarize, this was based on a series of podcasts um, from a um, from a podcast called Philosophize This, um, which is one of the, uh, the, I think both Duncan and I, one of our most favorite uh, channels in the podcast uh, ecosystem, and this has been one of the most seminal listens in my experience. It's quite astounding what we cover here. <laughs> um, so, in a nutshell, not what we cover what they covered <laughs> <laughs> but What we cover is probably not going to be astounding. No, <laughs> opposite of what was. In, yeah, uh, in fairness, good po- uh, good call out there, kid. But um, yeah. it, it, to to summarize quickly. Uh, The Frankfurt School is not actually a school, but a collection of intellectuals around the mid 20th century who were in a direct response to Marxism. Um, To be specific, these people were Marxists, but they were very um, strong critics of um, the Marxist concept.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. um, So sometimes I feel that we, or I sort of have a decent understanding of some of the things we talk about. But for this one, I'm super confident I don't get it. And (laughs) I'm super confident that I don't understand actually what the Frankfurt School is. And I'm super confident that I don't properly understand, for instance, what neo-Marxism is. I think I have some understanding, but I'm also confident that parts of it are wrong. So I think I have a partial understanding and that my partial understanding is partially incorrect. (laughs) So sometimes we just mispronounce words. Now we're just going to butcher concepts. And so somebody who actually knows about this stuff is going to listen to this and just cringe. <laughs> um, but one of the things i found is that you want to learn more about things. You don't want to. I sometimes want to learn more about things. And honestly, you don't start off knowing about things. Well you know I'm not born knowing anything, really. And so to learn, you sort of discuss it with people. Um, so I hope that you can um, find this interesting and useful. But I, I really, just a major caveat, Yeah, I'm pretty confident <laughs> that our description of Neo-Marxism or something or postmodernism is going to be totally different than somebody else and that other person is probably right and we just have <laughs> messed it up so sorry about what's about to happen
0: yeah i mean to be completely fair even to this day whenever i hear postmodernism, i think oh so that's kind of like future thinking or avant-garde isn't it uh, which is, uh, is quite misguided but um yeah. the, the other thing to be really mindful of is that When I first listened to this series, I had no idea about Frankfurt School, um, not a lot about Marxism or or all of the surrounding ideologies, but that didn't stop me from really enjoying this uh, exploration into this area of the world and how they approached it. So, um, yeah, give it a listen and then come back and just see how close or how far off the mark we were. Yeah. All right. So um, we thought we'd sort of walk through
1: history or at least our version of this. And you'll see where this happens. So the Frankfurt School, you know, kind of happened in the middle of the 20th century. But to understand where it comes from, I think you need to put it in context. So sort of we're going to go from hunter-gatherers to agrarian to then they build art, culture, and society. And then you have like an industrial revolution (laughs) and you sort of get up to where we are today. Um, So one sort of lens I look at the world is like, who did you work for? And I think humans have always worked for something. But we don't necessarily look at it this way. So when we're all hunter-gatherers, who did we work for? Um, so we worked for nature, as an example. Um, you know, we didn't necessarily live in harmony with nature. We lived at the mercy of nature. If there was a big drought or a flood, there wasn't enough food and people died. So we had to spend basically all days hunting and gathering to get food. Mm-hmm. And so we were working for nature. Um, and in this, we also tried, decided to work together. So I think when you have a partnership with somebody, it can be positive some, i.e. James and I work together and we get more than if we worked independently. And so if we got we independently, i get one unit. If James went independently, he'd get one unit. But if we work together, we might get three units. So that excess one unit we can split between us. That's a positive sum partnership. Some partnerships are zero sum. So we would have, together we would have got two and, and, and you know, separately we got two. And negative sum is you might work together and separately you would have got two, but now you get one and a half as an example. So good partnerships are mutually positive sum. And what you saw is that humans made sense to work in a tribe um, as opposed to an individual human and as this they got more food so even the best hunter got more food as part of the tribe and the worst hunter got more food too they had safety because there were other tribes and so if you're i don't know 90th percentile you know specimen and you encounter 350th percentile specimens you know 9 out of 10 times the 350th percentile specimens are going to take down the one 90th percentile specimen and you also had company <laughs> you know you could hang out with people etc mm. so done well a tribe was a good you know, partnership, i.e. something that even the person who was, say, the least good hunter <laughs> or the least good fighter got more from being part of the tribe than if they were separate, but also the best one got more from being part of it than if they were separate. So this is a more positive sum outcome. Now, there was inequality. Not everyone was the same. So typically, there's the head of the tribe. And sometimes they were the wisest person. Sometimes they were the best hunter or whatever else it is. But this is a voluntary hierarchy that people chose to be part of. And so... I just thought it was worth saying, like, some people think, oh, we only started working after the Industrial Revolution. But like no, when you were hunter-gatherers, nature was the boss. so You need food, right? Well, we can work with, you know, in nature. So you sort of see that. The second one is the agrarian revolution, where we started to tame nature. We weren't just totally against it. And then we worked as tribes. So we worked for the tribe and we worked for nature. And this was better than us being totally independent. No,
0: I, I think um, it would be, uh, would, it, would it be a fair um, summary to say that in the very early stages of man, and as we were starting to emerge, uh, we were not masters of our environment, we were more so, uh, I guess, uh, conducive to it. And what really started to separate us was the notion of cooperation. So I think we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, how uh, the, the, the homo sapiens managed to overthrow the Neanderthals, not because they were bigger and stronger, but because they knew how to work together. And so that was a, a self-correcting cycle that, um, you know, when success begets success, it starts becoming part of the encoded practice. And uh, this idea of cooperation is what then led us to be able to not only survive, but become the dominant species. Would that be fair?
1: Yeah, that's what they say. I don't know how they know this. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, know, a dog can communicate with another dog, right? But it, it can't communicate that much stuff. Like it might have 10 words effectively. I'm angry. <laughs> Or, like, I'm sorry, I'm being submissive, or whatever else it is. But humans were able to develop more complicated language than other species. All else equal, the more complicated your language, the better your ability to coordinate together. Now, it doesn't mean you definitely will, but its possibility of coordination is higher. And so, what they say is that humans were able to band together, for instance, in groups of 1,500, because we had stronger language and we could coordinate and Neanderthals weren't able to do more than, say, 150. So they had some language, just like a dog has some language, but not as much as, say, a human. Mm. And the Neanderthals were stronger. But 1,500 humans versus 150 Neanderthals, it wasn't, you know, they, they're no longer on Earth. <laughs> so, yeah, language is really important. And we were banding together to cooperate.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, um, in all fairness, there are still a few Homo sapiens who did crossbreed with Neanderthals. So we do actually have some recessive genes from that pool uh, in some of the some some people more so than others. So, uh, if you like to you know I don't know, uh, relegate to more brutish side of um, societal practice like playing football, then maybe you've got some uh, similar ancestors. You like this, James? So if you
1: get like a test from 23andMe which is like a DNA test. It can tell you things like what percentage of your DNA is Neanderthal. Guess what percentage of my DNA is Neanderthal. So oh. in, as a percentile, like am I 50th percentile or like 10th percentile Neanderthal or like 90th percentile Neanderthal? Or what do you think?
0: I'm going to go with 90th percentile. I'm 99th
1: percentile Neanderthal. <laughs> I'm like as much Neanderthal as humans can be. <laughs> and um, so I'm, I would say like a six foot one dude, um, like relatively lean build. Um, James is six foot five, you know, sort of. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just thought it was funny that, um, well, I don't know, if, and also Neanderthals weren't um, necessarily known as brighter than humans, or like, they had lower, I don't know, cognitive ability. So, so if all else equal, I should be some big hairy oaf, um, but I'm actually kind of like a average size, yeah. lean, yeah, so- somewhat
0: hopefully able to speak. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't pitch you to do very well on your own out in the wild either. Like, you know, just the thought of it, <laughs> trying to start a fire and find yourself some food to catch. It would be yeah, yeah. It, it would be interesting to watch, to say the least.
1: Okay, cool. So there's a hunter gather paradigm, and we worked for something. We worked for nature and we worked for the tribe. Now, the next paradigm is the agrarian one, where we started to do farming. Now, almost always when you go to something new... There's some parts that are better and some parts that are worse. But all else equal, is it a trade that's worth it? I.e. the new paradigm is net, net better and worth moving to versus the old paradigm. And so, you know, again, it's not always 100% better. So what's important to know is that in the tribe stage, there wasn't everyone being equal you know, there was the head of the tribe who, who probably got more food and, you know, a nicer hut, etc. <laughs> oh, no, they didn't, because they're hard to They just wandered around, I think. Um, okay, so agrarian society is the next one. This is where we started to have farms. And there are sort of many forms of this, but I'm going to sort of split it into lords and serfs, or landowners and non-landowners. So in this one... You kind of either lived in a castle, you were a lord, or you lived in a hut, you were a sort of peasant, if you you will, right? (laughs) Um, And if you look back before the Industrial Revolution, 90% of humans were subsistence farmers. So 90% of people working had one job, and then there's 10% other. Some of those people were like blacksmiths and whatever else, or the lords that sat around. But the vast, vast, vast majority of you were, were, um, you know, farmers. And so is this a better trade for the average person than it was in the previous you know set up of uh, hunter-gatherers so food instead of you know being totally at the mercy of nature we were starting to tame nature so you could plant food rather than just having to hope it grew on a tree you could you know direct water so one of the first ones was the egyptian uh, you know society and they had like natural irrigation when the, the um, nile flooded so it was sort of easier for them to hit uh, you know a farming uh, society because they had natural irrigation they didn't have to build all this stuff so all else equal you was easier to get food so under this paradigm, food was uh, much less of a variable. They was still varied, but it didn't vary as much as before. And one of the ways you can sort of see this is the human population increased. <laughs> so it was basically humans were as many as they could support off the food. And when it was hunter-gatherers, the, the land basically put out less units of food per, you know, whatever unit of land. And then when we started farming it, we got more units. So <laughs> population went up. Second one is safety. Um, now, different hunter-gatherer tribes had different levels of you know, actual fighting. Um, but I read a Stephen Pinker's book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, and I, I think these stats are right, but also they're probably wrong. Um, I think the um, Indigenous Australians, the Aboriginals had 2% of their population killed from intertribal warfare a year, and the Indian Americans were like 20%. So these are mega numbers, right? So there were constant reprisals between different tribes. Like, so tit for tat, you know, killing. And then when you had this, you were like, okay, well, there's the Lord, but then we're going to protect our land. So this means that this is our plot of land, and if someone tries to take it off, we have to go and get our swords out and go and fight off the invaders or whatever. So whilst there was still a lot of violence, there was less violence, so for instance, homicide from human to human, than there was in the hunter-gatherer days. And they called them savages. And part of the reason they called them that is because they would go around savaging each other a lot more. Um, Company increased as well, so there were more humans. So you went from just sort of a max of 150 to having little villages and other things. Um... And so for the average person, was it better? So let's just say the people at the bottom of the hierarchy, not the, not the top, not the lords, they went from having to you know live off the land to hunt every day to, you know, to having 2 to 20% of you know, intertribal warfare to having more stable food, better protection. Um, and one of the reasons for protection also happened is that as people specialized, like Duncan might only grow potatoes and James might only grow carrots or whatever, you needed to trade more with each other. And as you needed to trade more, you therefore realize that if you killed your neighbor, you lost something that you needed. Whereas before, you kind of were much more self-sufficient. So there was an incentive to not kill each other. <laughs> um, whereas before, it might be actually that the incentive was to kill each other because then there was more food from the land. Because if you kill off that whole other tribe, then they don't take down half the you know, buffalo or whatever the hell it is you're eating. So inequality went up, actually. The difference between the lord and the bottom level was, was higher than the head of the tribe and the the bottom level thing. But actually, the bottom level people got more as part of the agrarian society than they had as a hunter-gatherer society. So they had more food, more safety, more company. Mm. So all else equal, they were happy to go from more to less. Okay, that was a crapping long time of theory from
0: me. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, though, one of the important things that helps understand this, um, I guess, this human evolution is um, to look at it through a different lens, which is the what instinct is driving us through each of these major phases. Um, and I like to have this model that uh, helped me to break these things down. It's called the Maslow Hierarchy of Needs. I don't know if you've heard of <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. But so, hunter gatherer yeah, phase, a good one. I like that. Um, you are living in perpetual survivor mode. Uh, because it was really about when you were going to get your next um, meal. You did not know when food was going to be apparent. Like that's why our human bodies, to be overly simplistic, is geared towards storing energy in it because it, um, for hundreds of thousands of years, was conditioned to a world where food was not a guaranteed um, (laughs) thing every single day. Um, But what that means is that our minds, we're constantly geared towards this level of attention, which is at the very base of the hierarchy, which is how am I going to get uh, food? How am I going to get shelter? How am I going to uh, you know, be able to survive the next flood or the next um, you know, bushfire? When you then move to the, um, to the agrarian age, when there's farming, food becomes abundant and you're no longer operating at the base level you're now moving up the chain towards things more centered around safety and even this sense of belongingness um, or like, um, I guess, community. And what, uh, what, what some of the literature suggests is that like Duncan points out, back in the hunter gatherer phase, you were moving tribes of 150 and it was very easy to cooperate in that, at that number because people could actually interact with each other directly. But when you moved into the next phase where you went from 50, 150 tribes people to let's say 1500 plus towns people or in the, in the area, how then do you create a model for cooperation? Um, And what I found really interesting, um, and this is not historical fact, this is one, uh, I guess, thesis put forward, is that at the same time, this was when there was the proliferation of religious doctrine. And one idea is that when you move up the hierarchy and you start thinking about additional psychological uh, fulfillment, one of those things is, is this sense of existentialism. And so what... Purpose religion started serving, you know, back in the pre-medieval or even, you know, back to 2000 BC when the Egyptians were ruling, is that you then had to have some semblance of not like control in terms of manipulate, but control in terms of having a common goal within the larger population, and so that was what they were say was being serviced by this religious aspect. Hmm.
1: I'll just give James one question as before I say something. Um. I'm just intrigued because this is just theory, like a history that I'm making up, right? <laughs> um, and so just wanted to see if you had any key points that you didn't, you had a different point of view on than what I'd said about the hunter-gatherer and the agrarian. And while you have a second to think about that, I just thought I'd pick up on one of James's points. I really like the relation to Mather's hierarchy of needs. So slowly but surely, the first one was just safety and food. And it used to be that, you know, 2 to 20% of people were killed through intertribal warfare. Now in Australia, like less than one in a hundred thousand people is killed per year from homicide, human to human killing. You know we're a thousand times more likely to kill ourselves than we are to be killed. It used to be that, um, you know, 200 years ago, 90% of humans had stunting in their height due to not enough food. Now it's only 10% of humans. Now there's still that 10% went to get to them, but now more humans die from too much food than not enough food. So. Then the levels is like safety, um, then there's like food, then there is belonging, do you have, you know, friends, etc Then there is esteem, do you believe in yourself, then there is self-actualization, can you improve yourself, and then there's transcendence, helping others. And I think it's rare, it's fair to say, on average, that we have slowly moved up this hierarchy over time, and that each new paradigm, you know, agri- you know hunter-gatherer to agrarian to industrial revolution, etc., has all else equal helped the average person be better than what they were before.
0: Mm. Yeah, so that, um, I think that's a fair um, uh, paraphrasing of the, the idea I'm trying to put forward, which is that as we move into more abundance, we, as it affects or as a um, collective society, move up um, the chain of, hier- of hierarchical need from basic to psychological to self actualization. Mm. So, like Duncan, in terms of like what you were putting forward into, uh, as, as a let's say simplistic model of the entire history of mankind, uh, <laughs> um, I think it, it explains it well. I think there's obviously yeah go me. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's obviously a litany of other um, degrees of um, you know variation that we need to take into account. But at the uh, at, at the fundamental level, when we were going from hunter gatherers to, to farmers. Um, the, the common denominator was not only the sense of cooperation in terms of like, how do we work together in order to ensure that the, the wider group survives, but when we start controlling more of nature, we start to see more of that level of abundance. And then we start to see more of a spread between the, let's say the bottom and the top of the hierarchy.
1: Um, But the bottom still is better off than what it was in the previous paradigm.
0: Correct, correct. So, um, yeah, I think it's been put forward numerous times is that, you know, when there is um, across the board um, evolutionary, technological evolution, and farming is a technology, we just think of technology as digital today, but farming was a technological evolution. And so what that does was that it it lifts the entire um, level of society in terms of their standard of living um, entirely. There's There's no questioning that.
1: Cool. Um, Okay, so basically, hopefully, we hope humans get better at living as time goes on. (laughs) And this is ideally for everyone. And so there's a nice quote from a person called Will Durant, who is an eminent dead, um, which says, when inequality gets too big, there's redistribution. Redistribution of wealth through regulation or redistribution of poverty through revolution. We'll sort of get to this. But basically... To have a society that works well together to coordinate you need to ideally have everybody being better off than what they were before Hmm. and if you don't if if a large mass of people are worse off let's say the majority then there'll be a revolution (laughs) okay so i think you know all else equal you can do anything bad but the average outcome for agrarian societies was better than you know, hunter-gatherer ones. I don't know about you, James, but I don't particularly want to go back to being a hunter-gatherer. Do you, do you feel that's on your agenda?
0: <laughs> no, I think, um, you know, the, the arrow skews up into the right. So um, yeah. I would definitely not be um, volunteering to go back to that level of da- standard of living.
1: Each of their own. That's not saying what we want to do is right, but it's not on my agenda. <laughs> okay, next came the industrial revolution. Well, how did this happen? So you sort of saw before, 90% of people were subsistence farmers, but 10% weren't. And because they were more productive in making food, there were some people that didn't have to just spend all day hunting and gathering. Some of them got to, you know, think about making art and making science and philosophy and how do you run these things. And so they had all this sort of, you know, improvements. And so they talk about the Enlightenment, which happened about 500 years ago and sort of coincides with when Gutenberg invented the printing press because it was easier to distribute knowledge than a human hand wrote it out. You printed, you know, things. Mm. Um, And... Then the industrial revolution happened, and this is my favourite analogy. So what we were able to do before was tame nature a little bit by, you know, have planting food or whatever, or, or you know, having cattle or something, and then we we're able to get water to come where we wanted it to come, rather than just you know hoping it rained. Um, and then we were able to get things like coal and oil to help us, and so we we're able to release the energy in coal and oil or, or dead dinosaurs um, to yeah. help us do things. Um, and so. An example is like a human with a chainsaw and one gallon of petrol. And someone did these stats, I don't know how they figured this out, is able to cut down as many trees as 16 people if they had a saw in one day. So they were able to replace 16 people's work with one person's work because of petrol, right? And this happened everywhere. So now, instead of 90% of people being systems farmers, and that's what's required to feed humanity, and only 10% of people not got to be a farmer in the agrarian age, now, in developed countries like, I don't know, Australia or the US, about 1.5% of people are farmers, and they feed everyone, whereas it used to be 90% of people required to feed, and then in, in the hunter-gatherer stage, like 100% of people required to feed, right? Um, so that's like an out-of-control productivity game, and because we don't have to no longer till the soil with our hands, we get to do other things. Um, you know, whatever that may be. You know, I'm working in the education side up. James is working at, you know, BCG, digital ventures. Some people are massage therapists. Some people are, you know, making coffees, etc. So the Industrial Revolution was the next sort of phase and it was able to lift a lot of people out of poverty. So we've looked at these things from before. Did you get more food? Yes. You know, we've been massive increase. So there was more food in the agrarian versus the actual hunter-gatherers. And then in industrialization, there was more food again. Did safety increase again? Yeah, we went to have things like police, you know, courts, jails, etc. Um, but also, again, we had more and more specialization. So, I don't know about you, but I rely heavily on people for basically everything. I, I basically, if I had to go back 200 years, I would not last like a week. <laughs> I, don't know how to, I don't know how to do anything basic. Like, um, So, safety has increased um, because we, I don't know, we have a better society that, you know, regulates things. We also have more, uh, all else equal, um, typically... The more people have sort of read and experienced, the more um, they are relaxed about others. So, that, so that the less they're willing to get into a fight about something. And then also we trade more. So just implicitly, you know that you need these other people to do stuff. So if you get rid of them, then all that stuff goes away. Ooh. Life expectancy went up. If you look at life satisfaction, things have gone up. All that other stuff, you know, more culture, etc. So all else equal, it looks like for the average person, it was a massive increase in, you know, food safety, company, life expectancy, than it was in the previous,
0: uh, you know, paradigm. Mm. Mm. Yes, I think one of the, um, so like, one of the elements that we can look at each of these major phases in terms of the effect it has on our um, life quality um, are the systems that they run through. So to give you an example, like, you know, when you talked about courts and um, police and uh, so, concept of law. You know, they've been around for thousands of years as well. Um, the you know the ancient uh, the ancient Greeks had a senate and a um, uh, you know a, a, a mandate of all of their different rulings and laws thousands of years ago. But it was the systems within which they were enacted that have become far more effective over time. You know, we have because of the abundance provided to us by the industrial revolution, we have a much more, um, I guess, control system around how law is actually um, enacted within a society. Um, Another form of system is communication. Hunter and gatherer, pretty much either just verbal, uh, like bodily gestures or grunts or spoken words. Uh, But then when we advanced, we had the written word, Mm -hmm. which was able to share information exponentially more vastly around, um, you know, Neighboring villages and even across uh, oceans and all of that. And now we have digital technology that's taken that step shift change up together entirely. So, if we look at the way in which, not because um, it's not the people that are evolving, you know, our brains are not that different from when they were 200,000 years ago, but the systems no, and, about,
1: about 50, they say, 200,000 years ago, quite different, apparently.
0: All right, okay. Um, yeah. So, fair, to, to be fair, 50,000 years ago, um, we were still barely in the farming age. But, it's, pretty, it's pretty long time ago. <laughs> yeah. um, so, our brains haven't changed that much, but the systems in which we operate do. Um, yeah. So, we think ourselves highly sophisticated, um, at least more so than those who lived before us. But it's only because we were indoctrinated within these systems that we understand how to use them more effectively.
1: Yeah, um, I remember um, one thing, um, I think it was Charles Darwin when he was going around some of those islands in the Galapagos or somewhere, um, he got a um, young sort of native from one of the islands. I think it was like two or three. And these were like primitive people, right? Um, And then took back to England um, and then thought, what's going to happen? And the kid turned out exactly like them. Speak English, talk everything the same way. So, you know, was on an island wearing like, I don't know, nothing or some little bit of, you know, without much language, you know, going around hunting his spears. And then took a you know an infant, and then raised it in the UK, and it was exactly like all the UK people. So in some respects, that person on that island might have been living like how the average person in humanity was fifty thousand years ago.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. and uh, then they can be taken and instantly changed, and and that's really interesting. So we have built all this culture, knowledge, communication, etc., um, and our humans physiology hasn't changed that much, um, but the world we interact in is changed with you know out of con- side of conception.
0: Yeah, uh, another. Um... Uh, way of looking at it is challenging the concept of what is intelligence, um, because if you could uh, reasonably imagine an alien flying over Earth fifty thousand years ago and looking down, just seeing nothing but you know um, vagabonds and um, <laughs> or just like tribes running around spearing each other. They would probably say there's not really that much intelligent life on this planet. But if they come back fifty thousand years later, and here we are, uh, you know, driving around in electric cars that can come on command. Thank you, Elon. Um Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. you would think rather differently of the level of intelligence, but the actual physiological makeup is exactly the same. Our neuroplasticity hasn't changed. So um mm. like what Darwin um uh like simulated with that particular um, use case well that situation, we could uh arguably do the same with someone from 50,000 or, you know, even 10,000 years ago and bring them to the modern world and raise them in this setting. Um, So it it, it really does have this compelling notion of what has changed over the last 200 to 2,000 years. It's not us. It's our ability to have uh, incremental gains and the systems that we build around ourselves with the use of technological advances.
1: Mm. Cool. Um, One point I think is also worth making. In each paradigm, I think there's some parts that are better and some parts that are worse. Mm. And so it's not always just 100% better. And so one of the ways I think about it, there's always like a new scourge for humanity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think the current one is actually like social media. I think it'll it'll be around long term and we need to learn how to use it well. Um, But humans are feeding themselves anxiety, you know, depression, eating disorders, uh, bullying, etc. And so I think one that happened out of the first Industrial Revolution is, first of all, there was more productivity so we could make more stuff. Humans got paid more and they didn't have to spend, for instance, all their time hunting and gathering or all their time subsistence farming, you know, to make sure they had potatoes to sell at the the market. Mm. And so one thing that happened is they went from like, I don't know, you sold your potatoes at the market and you only got paid if that happened to you get paid fortnightly because you worked at a factory. And they had more time and so people made alcohol. So they had more money and they had all this new productivity. So some of those people stopped, you know, being farmers and started making alcohol. And so you had a massive alcohol problem. <laughs> and then you had prohibition in the US because, you know, I don't know, the males were typically the work and they get paid and then they walk straight to the pub and go and get obliterated <laughs> and spend <laughs> the fortnight's money and then come home and perhaps not necessarily be the world's most nice human. And maybe there was a bit of domestic violence and other stuff. And so... This wasn't a problem before because they didn't have the time to go and get drunk and they didn't have the alcohol to go and drink because there wasn't enough productivity. Mm. And so it's not always good. I think this is always the case. Like some new stuff brings with it bad. Like it's some good, some bad. For better or worse, it's part of the parcel. You can't can't have the internet, which is information for everyone, and hope that it's only good information. Mm. There's going to be some bad information in there. So I just wanted to say the point is there's some good and some bad. Hmm. People get stuck on, well, this bit's bad. I'm like, well, yeah, but it also comes with good. You can't dissociate. It's part of the parcel.
0: Yeah. So this is what I like to, um, you know, uh, I guess put forward in terms of my own way of thinking um, because it's something I witness every single day with um, babies and toddlers trying this out for themselves is that when you acquire, when there is a new, um, let's say, area of um, knowledge or a new area of activity in order for you to gain an understanding of that space, you have to explore the entire spectrum. You can't just go in and just do things sensibly in one manner because then you don't actually know what's possible. And it looks it, like the way we behave as humans, uh, even at a um, as a meta level, appears that when we have something that is seemingly good or makes you feel good, um, you will have this, I guess, adoption that will go all the way to what we consider an extreme level because there is no awareness of what the trade-off of that experience is. Like Duncan pointed out with the alcohol um, you know, uh, epidemics of when people were first exposed to that and you know we still see that today. Um, uh, this happened in opium in China, when people were first exposed to that, it would um, then yeah. lead to, you know, extreme uh, complications and um, very, very harsh situations. And we're now seeing that with social media. And I think with each of these new introductions, or like whether you want to call them vices or, you know, uh, pleasurable experiences, we have to be exposed to them at this level to get a better understanding of where the healthy boundaries are.
1: Yep. Um, so one of the things I wanted to go back to is this inequality. <laughs> so in the first hunter-gatherer ones, there was inequality. There was the head of the tribe and then there was the lowest person. Um, and that was still made sense to be part of the tribe because the person who was at the bottom got more than if they were by themselves and the person who was at the top got more than if they were by themselves. Then you went to agrarian societies and there was inequality. There were lords and there were serfs, right? Um, so the the, what, the person at the top was much more wealthy relative than the tribal leader. Um but it still, for the bottom person, was better off being part of the agrarian society than it was being part of a hunter-gatherer society. Then we move to the Industrial Revolution. Now, this is done well. You can mess them all up. Mm. Inequality gets even bigger again. You have the rubber Barons, Carnegie, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, etc. And these people are like, you know, some of the wealthiest people that have ever been on this earth. And so the top got further away, but did the bottom get better than what it was? So did they, for instance, want to stay in an agrarian society where 90% of people were, were subsistence farmers or were they happy to have a truck to help out? And all else equal, now, there's been big schisms through this. The, the, the person at the bottom, done well, wins more from this. So there is inequality. There has always been inequality. Mm. The inequality has typically been getting bigger. But that doesn't mean that the person at the bottom isn't better off in the new paradigm than they were in the previous paradigm. Mm. Nothing is going to be perfect Um I don't know what perfect is, but what we really want to hope is that we're getting better slowly over time and that everybody in society from the top to the bottom is in a better place than what they were. And if you have that split fairly, then you have hopefully a well-functioning, happy society, not a dysfunctional revolution society.
0: Yeah. So um, I think what what we can agree on is that uh, this notion of, you know, the tide lifting um, all boats for everyone being a good thing would be acceptable you know in terms of our livelihood if we were entirely rational beings and as uh, as Duncan and I have explored previously uh we're not all that rational when it comes to being (laughs) human beings uh and the point I'm making is that um as you uh you know articulated uh, a number of times already this sense of inequality is what is driving a lot of I guess this uh you know dissension to um, this accumulation of wealth. Uh, and so what I mean by that is that like from from hunter gatherer phase to agrarian phase to industrial revolution, the entire pie of wealth has grown exponentially. And that has distributed to everyone in a sense that everybody, um, their livelihoods have been lifted. But the gap between the very bottom and the very top is what has also grown. And this can be in a way explained by Things like the Pareto principle, which is you know another circle of the eighty twenty rule. So in the let's say the agrarian age, if you had a pie, you know a hundred um, corn to distribute to um, everyone, um, you know the majority of the corn would go to the people at the very top. But it didn't seem like anywhere much more than you know what everyone else is getting. But when you've got a lot more wealth in the modern age, and you see an extreme amount of that going to the top then people start getting a lot more dissatisfied with that arrangement. So even though your livelihood has been lifted, you don't see how it's been lifted compared to the past. All you see is how you are living compared to those at the very top.
1: I've got a bunch of things I'd like to add to what James just said, but I'll sort of get to them later. Um, some people talk to this tribal or, or identity politics. Um, you know, there was the head of the tribe and everybody else. Then there was the landowners and everyone who worked on the land. Then when we get to industrial revolution there's the owners of the businesses, the, you know the owners of the industry and the people are the workers. This is I think a far too simplistic way of looking at the world because you know you don't either own the business or you know you work in it, you might have shares and equity. so it's a much sort of more gray area I think now. So for instance, there were about 400 jobs in Western Europe you know, 300 years ago now there's more than half a million of them. So what humans are doing is wildly more diverse um, and there is not a clear delineation, I think, between, for instance, owners of businesses and workers in businesses. But now we're kind of up to Marxism and this is my explanation of Marxism. So there's two types of people, the people who own the businesses and the people who work in them. So there's the proletariat, the working class, and the bourgeoisie, the people who own this. And what happens is the people who own businesses, according to Marx, exploit the workers and then inequality gets too big. And when inequality gets too big, then there's a revolution, and the better system is socialism, where the government owns all the businesses. So there's no set of people that you know that own the businesses; it's only the government. And then there's a fair redistribution or a fairer distribution of the profits from the business, as opposed to it being exploited. Mm. So this is kind of the idea. The, the thing is that anyone, whether well, they've ever tried this, it hasn't worked this way. So I think it's a really nice idea. So again, inequality went up under industrialization. Um, but the, I would argue that in the you know, most societies, or, or almost all, the bottom people got more than when they were in agrarian. And then what Marx was saying is it wasn't fair. There were people at the top like Carnegie and Rockefeller who had too much. And they just needed to be distributed. And that the you know, working people would rise up and... Do this and the better system was that there weren't people like Rockefeller and Carnegie who owned the businesses. It was all owned by the state or socialism, and that they would then distribute it more fairly. The problem is that you see this tried in like, I don't know, Russia, China, uh, you know, Vietnam, etc. It actually meant that there was bigger distribution. And so that the people who ran the government were turbo wealthy and the people at the bottom were less wealthy than in a sort of, you know, capitalist society or one where they weren't allowed to be business owners. Now no one's saying that one system is perfect, that capitalism is perfect. But was it better on average for the, you know, for people even at the bottom th- than under agrarian study? I think yes. Mm. Now, there are nice ideas in Marxism, but when they've tried it, has this been worse on average for people across the entire spectrum, from the wealth to the poor? Yes. Now, if you could get some perfect, I don't know, Marxist utopia to work, maybe you have a better distribution. But unfortunately, <clears throat> if you look at history, it's not an idea that's worked well you know when people have tried it
0: yeah so um yeah we've we, we made a big leap here in terms of um, understanding how the i guess the the proliferation of abundance have affected societies over time now we've jumped straight into marxism so i think like you pointed out duncan what we have witnessed um all the way up to the beginning of the 20th century with the industrial revolution and capitalism is this extreme growth or the extreme um, widening of the um, of the wealth inequality uh, between the the bourgeois and the bourgeoisie? Sorry, and the proletariat. Bourgeoisie, I suck at French words so hard. But uh, go on and and the proletariat. Yeah. Um, so proletariat. And okay. so, in a in a way, Marxism was this critique on the inequality that was expanding between um, the haves and the have not in this capitalistic model.
1: In the industrialization model,
0: correct, yeah. correct. So, oh, cap- yeah, 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 yeah. So, d- so, so, this was a denounce, denounce, denouncement, De- denunciation, denunciation.
1: A <laughs> um, denounce, you a denounce, your, a pronunciation of
0: denunciation <laughs> of oh. of a um, of of a model where capitalism would be um, determining how we run as a society. Um, so, when you were talking about Marxism, what we um, are like what the argument is, is that we should, like, they're, they're trying to move away from the hierarchy, where you have people sitting across the hierarchy, where you have people at the very top and at the very bottom is dead, you should make it flat. And that's where, like, the idea of, you know, the Marxist version of socialism, um, instead of having individual liberty, there's group liberty, where we must serve the greater um, um, the group over the individual.
1: Yeah, um, so... I think all else equal if people think that things are getting better you know then they're okay now no one's saying that we shouldn't improve from where we are but i think you've got to put it in context you know are things getting better um and so i think that for the average person they have been you know sort of continually getting better and this is one thing you know there was meant to be a marxist revolution but for the average you know for let's say uh, even the people at the very bottom of the you know uh, social income they were getting more food than they were getting when it was uh, in an industrial space than it was when they were agrarian. And also, if you go and look at, like, I don't know, communist Russia or communist China, there were massive, you know, starvation that was going on. Mm. That people weren't getting enough food and other things. Safety was up. When it's, things are run by the state, it's easily corruptible. <laughs> so they have, you know, like, I forgot the name of the Russian people, but they would send you to gulags and they will do all this horrific stuff. Darling. And so, yeah, no, no, there was a special police they have, which I've forgotten their name. Um, so... No one's saying that, you know, we don't want to improve the existing societies today. We do. But for all those equal, you know, are homicide rates going down? Yes. Like, do you walk around, I don't know, in Australia and worry about getting mugged? No. Or killed? No. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know? Um, so, what are we looking for? Food, you know, it was better as a tribe than as an individual. Then it was better agrarian than it was tribe. Then it was better industrial revolution mm-hmm. than it was agrarian. Safety was better, all of them. Company was better. Discretionary income was better. And we're not talking about just the top, we're talking about all the way across. Yeah. And so I think this is really, really important that we're not talking about this being perfect. We're talking about whether it is an improvement over what it was before. And then they said, well, is there an improvement upon capitalist society? And for instance, is Marxism this instead of there being uh, you know, people that own businesses, it's owned by the state. Now, it depends if they ran that really well. But unfortunately, I don't think there's been an example where it's been done well, uh, as in better than, I don't know, a Western liberal democracy has been able to do it. Now, no one's saying Western liberal democracy is perfect. No one's saying we don't want to improve from where we are. But has it was it an improvement, or else equal from where it was before?
0: I think um, to, to be um, at least the way I understand it, if not, Marxism is not a critique on capitalism in the sense that things are not getting better for certain individuals. It was a critique on the people at the bottom being oppressed. So that the the argument they put forward is that people don't have this sense of like people. Will agree that think, things are yeah. uh, it things are okay if they're getting better and it's fair, because when mm. you can see this, yeah, that's a really important point. Um, when you can see this manipulation or this corruption happening, so that you stack everything against those at the bottom for those at the top, that's when you can um, have things like a revolution like, or an uprising. Um, like they um, and they did a very simple study with um, chimpanzees, which I uh, really enjoyed watching, where two chimpanzees were given a task to do. And when they completed that task, they would both be given a date, which was, you know, a very delightful treat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, not a date with another chimp. (laughs) Sorry.
0: (laughs) No, you get to go out with a really good-looking chimp. (laughs) Um, But what happened was that um, then they showed what happened when one chimp completes a task and they're given a, a less desirable treat, I think just some, like, some cashews, and then they do the task and they're happy with the cashews. And then over time, they're given a better treat like a date and they're happy with the date. But then when another chimp does the exact same task and they Why get a...
1: stood up on the date though?
0: Um, sorry. sorry. But, um, no, stupid. When they get in and so the other chimp does the task, the same task, and they get an apple. So this other chimp has been happy doing what they were doing um, and being rewarded, even though it's a better reward than what they got previously, they're no longer happy with it because this other chimp did the same thing and got an apple. And like you can actually see the chimp like look at this thing in his hand and they just reject it and throw it at the person who was giving it to him um, because of this perceived inequality, because of this perceived mm. oppression mm. in terms mm. of like um, production and output.
1: Yeah, um, I just looked. We've gone for 46 minutes, which is like bloody long. We're not even like halfway through. I think this is going to be a
0: two-part. <laughs>
1: like, anyways, like James is right. Um, it's not just that the people, for instance, across the entire pie are getting better. So, for instance, if you're at the bottom and things are getting worse for you under the new paradigm, then you're not going to be happy. you got to go back to the other paradigm. You have a revolution, right? But even if they're getting better, but you don't think that it's fair i.e. the people at the top are getting more of the gains than the people at the bottom, then you're unhappy. So it's not just that you're better, it's that you think that the gain of the pie, the pie growing, is split fairly. So the piece that goes to the bottom is split fairly. And so what's been happening is there are periods of where some pie goes more to the top and some pie goes more to the bottom. But typically what happens is inequality goes up and then there's a large rebargaining of the social contract. So... As an example, the first industrial revolution happened, and then you had these owners of industry, and they were sort of the wealthiest people on earth, you know, Rockefeller, Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, et cetera. Yeah, another, Yeah, correct. Um, and so then um, what happens is these people are mega wealthy, and the people at the bottom think it's unfair that someone has this much money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they get unhappy, and then there's sort of revol- you know people in the street. So if, when the inequality gets too high, there's redistribution. Redistribution of wealth through regulation or redistribution of poverty through revolution. And what do you want? I think we'll take the redistribution of wealth. Thanks very much because no one else, not anyone wanted to be poor. Um, and so the first one was in the late 1800s. There were no unions. There were none of these other things. And so people were working, now each one's different, but on average six days a week, 12 hours a day. And then they had a re of the social contract where they went to working five days a week and eight hours a day on average. And they didn't really take much of a pay cut. It's just that the people at the top were making mega profits and this happened. And then everyone was sort of happy. And so, this is like, oh, that's much better. I feel better. I've got the same amount of money for less work. And then what happens is typically things get unequal again. So, there's a big stem up and then there's a rebargaining. So, the first one was they're getting um, less, you know, unionizing and, and same pay, roughly, less hours. Then the second one happened in the 1930s. It got really, really big again. And then you had another rebargaining of the social contract. This is Roosevelt's New Deal. So, before that, if you lost your job, you didn't have any welfare, you didn't have any health care from the government. So what they did is they got welfare and healthcare and then they also had started to have the government giving people jobs. So the government would fund, you know, infrastructure, et cetera. Mm. And so there was another re-bargaining. There was no social safety net really at the bottom before. Like you lost your job up to you. And so then they had another big re-bargaining. Inequality went down. And now inequality is going up again. And right now it's at sort of that, right at the sort of levels, not as high as it was in the late 1800s or as high as it was in the 1930s. But you can feel society getting unhappy. Mm. Because whilst people at the bottom are growing, they're not growing anywhere near as fast so in the bottom quintile as the top quintile. Mm. And they think it's unfair. And frankly, it is unfair. And you see this dissent like Brexit, Trump, etc. Um, and what you need to do the rise of I don't know. So what's happened is people are unhappy with the existing status quo. And so then you, they have populism, which is moving to the, either end. One end is fascism or authoritarianism, and the other end is communism. And so, I don't know, you might say the hard right is like a Trump-style person and the hard left is like a Bernie Sanders-style person. They are kind of mirror images of each other because people are un—they're losing faith in the status quo. Mm. And Hillary Clinton was like status quo. So it was a vote against status quo. Staying in the European Union was a vote against status quo. And so what needs to happen is another re of this social contract. Mm. But some people are fighting it. And they don't listen to history. And so what can you give? I don't know, universal health care in the US. You can fund people's tertiary education. You could think about a universal basic income, et cetera. Mm, so mm. the redistribution from the top to the bottom has been going up over time. But it doesn't right. happen like a little bit each you know, year. It basically goes in big chunks normally. <laughs> um, and so and then inequality goes up. So I think we're about to have a big chunk redistribution. Mm.
0: Yeah. So I, I really like this point about um, the social contract and how we need to revisit this because what's happening is that there is a growing level of dissent. Um, across nations in the world where we see this, you know, like I can said, like this reverts back to populism, nationalism, um, these revolts against Wall Street, like um, we are the 99% and all of these other kinds of ideolo- ideologies that are spurring out of this sense of inequality. Um, and the other side of this coin, so going back to um, the hierarchy uh, and where you see people sitting on the left and the right of the spectrum, um, you know, when you see the right side, people acknowledge that the hierarchy is essential to a working um, society, or even to a working functioning species, and then you have the lobster argument for that side. And then on the left side, they say, "Well, the hierarchy invariably leads to um, people at the very bottom um, either being dispossessed or oppressed because the hierarchy, hierarchy is corrupt." And yes, hi- like you know, power, absolute power, of corruption. Um, power corrupts, absolutely. Um, but that's not an argument to throw out the hierarchy because it's embedded in us as a species, not as a model of capitalism.
1: No, no, I don't think it's embedded in us as a species. It has been a system that has worked well. By coordinating, we have got more than by not coordinating. Right. So I, I would say that it is a fundamental... We're just learning how to hopefully coordinate better. Mm. So two steps forward, one step back. But all else equal, human, humanity coordinates more today than it did 10 years ago you know, and and so on and so forth, yeah.
0: Well, I guess maybe not embedded in us physiologically, but embedded in our way of um, having a successful, um, you know, paradigm of, yeah, coordinating together, all all the rest of it. And so um, this brings us back to this idea of capitalism versus Marxism, because capitalism really does depend on the hierarchy in order to work. Um, The other thing I wanted to just quickly mention was that hierarchies basically function when they're based entirely on competence, um, which is where you do see the Pareto principle working, um, you, know, you know, a lot better. Pareto when Pareto principle. Pareto principle. Thank you, yeah. Um, yeah. In things like the arts world and things like sports, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but when it's based on, um, you know, accumulation of power, that's when it starts to break down. And people, when they witness this, they see, they conflate the corruption of the hierarchy with the hierarchy itself and they want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and move back to something more socialistic or, in this case, Marxism.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, we're actually finally up to the Frankfurt School. <laughs> we got to have got there. Okay, so, so I think that this idea of, um, I don't know, capitalism versus socialism or, or Marxism is a false dichotomy. It's not either or. Um, it is that we sit on a continuum. And that we have certain industries that sit, you know, better up one end, I don't know, the socialist end, and we have certain industries that sit better up the other end. So as an example, I think, you know, with education, it's quite often heavily socialized. There's a government sector, you don't, you don't get to choose the teachers, you don't get to choose the students, you don't get to choose what you're teaching. And so I think, you know, all else equal, we want to have a no child left behind policy and that it's very important to have, you know, education for everyone. And so I think that this is a pretty good place for it to be. But I also don't think, for instance, that the government should decide what all new businesses should be. They should allow a thousand flowers to bloom. Um, But there also needs to be regulation. For instance, I don't think there should be no banking regulation. (laughs) You know, I don't think that people necessarily, you know, operate best because it's a competency-based hierarchy. Sometimes they are doing a negative sum game. Heads I win, tails you lose, which is kind of what I think the banking system turns into without regulation. So what I think you people have lost is this like it's either socialism or capitalism like no 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 we are in a blend of the two and we need good regulation to help us But bad regulation is bad good regulation is good and some industries should be far more up the regulated slash socialized end to the point where for instance they're controlled by the government um and some should be really hands off where and what i don't know the world changes and so i think that there's this sort of false dichotomy between marxism or socialism and capitalism and that somewhere like america you know has slowly more and more regulation mm. banking regulation environmental regulation healthcare regulation it's not a total free market society there is police there are courts you know etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. and so i think this is a false dichotomy we need to figure out how we tinker at the edges around making it work well but i also think we need to redistribute more um, and we need to <laughs> close the gaps at the top or the loopholes and then hopefully make sure that the people at the bottom have more.
0: Mm, yeah, uh, it goes back to um, you know what you you like to say all the time, Doug, is that you know a model like capitalism done well is good. Capitalism done badly is bad. Um, yeah. And so when you look at the corruption and all of the uh, inequity that happened in a system, um, it doesn't mean the system itself is flawed. Um, and that was the argument put forward by um, the Frankfurt School, they were at, um, um, they identified as Marxist, but they also acknowledged that a lot of Marxism was inherently flawed. So I think, Duncan, we might have to call time because we've come up to the mm. hour mark. Um, so we, uh, we might touch base on the Frankfurt School, what it is, and go a little uh, deeper in our next episode. Hmm.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, we could, um, or can we, can we jam this out now? <laughs> I would say that one, one characterization of the Frankfurt School is why wasn't there a social uh, a Marxist revolution? Um, and one of their characterization was that this was the most insidious, you know, I don't know, a Western liberal democracy, um, was the most insidious of totalitarian regimes because people didn't even know they were living in a totalitarian regime. They were trained since birth to think of themselves as workers and consumers. Go to work, consume when you get home. And that they were doing this of their own free volition rather than being forced to go and work um, in, in, as in some totalitarian societies. Mm. Uh, my critique would be, I think a well-functioning society is where everybody gains and has gaining over time. So they're better off than they you know, were 10 years ago or in 20 years. And that the, the amount is, uh, is split fairly. And finally, this is like the Rawlsian utopia part, where we try to tilt the scales. So everyone has a different starting point in life. But we should try to hopefully, you know, have affirmative action to undo people who were disadvantaged, who you know, no right, they were just born to somebody else, and so you want to ideally in the rules in a utopia, as my name is basically give everyone the same opportunity to succeed. So everyone gets access to education, mm. everyone gets access to healthcare, everyone exists. But you want a quality of opportunity, not a quality of outcome. Yes. And yes. so for me, I think that the Frankfurt School was saying, well, there should have been a Marxist revolution, but there wasn't. Why? Well, one is that. Everyone doesn't realize that they're being subjugated and they're doing this at their own free will because of this hectic, you know, indoctrination they're not even aware of. I don't think that's actually a fair characterization. Now, I was worried about this in you know, I think it was in the 30s and 40s and 50s, et cetera. And I think all else equal, you've seen, you know, I don't know, Russia, China, and a whole lot of other people move to more towards, I don't know, a liberal, you know, democracy. Um, even though I, uh, China's maybe what like an authoritarian capitalist regime. I don't know. <laughs> um, so for me, um, I don't think we are in a insidious tyrannical regime where we don't realise it. Um, I think that we are better than we were 20 years ago, but that we still want to get better than we are now and that we need to tinker with this thing, but not
0: necessarily Mm. throw the baby out with the bathwater, as James
1: had said. Mm.
0: Yeah, so um, just to add to uh, Duncan's eloquently uh, point, is, as a society, yes, we do want a system that allows us all to um, not only grow with the rising tide, but have an opportunity to improve um, our livelihoods. Um, and I think we would accept a hierarchy if it was indeed based on competence and not accumulation of power. Um, the, the- No, we accept it if it's, we're better off as part of it. Well, everyone's a part of it. Um, and if it's not corrupt and it's based entirely on competence, then I think it will um, revert to a more natural distribution. Because if you understand intuitively that if you have a way that you can, apply, uh, because there's also not one hierarchy, there's a whole uh, litany of hierarchies, you know, because um, uh, Jordan Peterson really explained it much better than I can on Joe Rogan, where, you know, just because you are not going to be a um, t- world class athlete doesn't mean that you can't be successful in other pursuits. So there are different hierarchies, you're not necessarily only um, lined up against one. Um, But if you can see yourself um, working within a society that is um, moving up and towards the right, and that hierarchy within the society is based on competence and is not corrupt, um, like that would be an ideal scenario. Um, But that's not what the Frankfurt School was about. Um, that's more about um, more, uh, the, the more liberal thinkers of today's intellectual dark web um, putting forward, and we can talk about that later on. But the Frankfurt School was looking at critically the idea of Marxism um, fundamentally being correct that we should have a distribution of wealth. But the problem with Marxism was that it uh, essentially didn't talk enough about personal liberty and didn't do enough to consider the individual. So I think we might have to explore this a little bit further next time.
1: Yeah. Um, I hope um, you have enjoyed this. I have enjoyed it. <laughs> this is what I'm anyway, like We do this, um, not necessarily for other people. Hopefully, other people enjoy it. But like, if I didn't enjoy doing this with the jams, I wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> I remember like, I was at the gym this morning. And I'm like, oh, oh we should just restructure this. Because um, normally, we write some questions around just like a historical you know, narrative. Um, so, Yeah. Um all else equal, we have more food today. We have more safety today. We have, you know, more company today. We have more access to things today. Um, so I think the world is better than what it was. Does the world need to improve? Yes. Is inequality too high at the moment? I think yes. Should we distribute more? Yes. <laughs> uh, lots of these things. All right, dude. I gotta roll. Good talking to you, Duncan. Catch you soon. Bye. Bye.